David Hershkovitz, and you're listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Based in Vancouver, Canada, Burb strives to build on the city's legacy of cannabis tolerance and its gift to the world, BC Bud. Follow us on Instagram, at ShopBurb, and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash lightculture. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Light Culture. It's a cliche to say my guest needs no introduction and to then go on and give them an introduction anyway, as usually happens. But yeah, my guest today is Rose McGowan, activist, actress, author, and now a recording artist who has released an album's worth of music called Planet Nine. It's ambient, it's spoken word, it's a form of time travel with beats provided by some of the most talented producers and musicians in the game. Welcome, Rose. Hi, David. Thank you. So what made you want to put out an album? I'd only sang on um, like three movie soundtracks, and I, I love the songs I sang, but it wasn't necessarily my taste. And while I was writing my book, Brave, I simultaneously wrote and recorded this album. And I just had to kind of fine tune it and sit on it for about two and a half years while I fought some monsters because it wasn't the time to release it. And then I started thinking about quarantine and how we we can't travel outside right now. But I think with this album and music kind of, or art, we can travel inside. Well, time travel is part of the vibe, isn't it? And and you even have, right? And you even have uh, it written on, on your webpage for the album about how this was something that's inherent to how you've lived your life and acted and you've always sort of like astral projected as part of your your process your creative process yeah I had no idea how to act uh, really because I was discovered I'd done like one line in a movie before that and was an extra and then I got discovered to be a lead in a movie three years after that. And I was like, well, how do you act? And I thought, well, I remembered how I used to always practice astral projection growing up because I found a book, you know, on that. And it was really something that I would just leave my body. I just love that feeling, you know, of just being able to travel like in the stars. And I kind of wanted to replicate that with music. Did it work for you? Was, was yeah. when, when you were making it? Yeah. It really worked. And, you know, the I, I really made the album during a very traumatic period in my life, but it's a really hopeful album. And I'm really intentional with my work. And I really know that this helps people in a really unique way right now. And, I, and in general, but right now specifically, I think this music really works. And, it, and because it's what healed me, so I know it works that way. It kept me sane. It kept you saying making it. Does it is it a long lasting effect? Do you still feel that now? Do you feel like you've left a lot of that trauma and and the difficulties that you referred to earlier? That that's kind of behind you at this point. Well, yes, and one of those reasons is because um, the person that was terrorizing me for so long is in jail. So I don't feel like I have this three hundred and fifty pound man with their foot on my neck, which they've had for the last twenty two years you know, and then really hard in the last three or four. So I've been healing, but this was instrumental in just keeping my equilibrium and it works. I still use the music to transport me and, and soothe me. 
And also there's some bangers on it too. Yeah, no, it's a really good album. I, I enjoyed it, listening to Thank it quite you. a bit. And I actually will go back and listen to it some more when, when I have more time, when I finish with you and have, you know, a little bit of perspective on, on what this right. whole thing's about. So Planet Nine is, it's a real planet now, isn't it? Are you referring to something it that is. actually exists, right? It is. But I, I created it when I was 10 years old. I wrote about my planet and I named it Nine. I don't know why, I just like the curve of the number. And as we do with our invisible playmates, we forget about them. And then when astronomers found Planet Nine, I was like, what? That's what made Pluto not a planet, right? It got demoted. So I decided, I don't know why, but as soon as they made that discovery public, I just connected it to, well, I need to make music for my planet, logically, naturally. It was kind of a leap there, but it kind of is. Like, I used to wonder what sound frequencies were on this planet. and and um, I really like kind of hypnotic rhythms. And I actually modeled a lot of my speech pattern on this hypnotherapist I saw a couple of times. Not to like make people bark like a dog, but he was very soothing. <laughs> Not when he put me under, but just in the 45 minutes we would just talk. And he just had a really interesting rhythm and cadence to his voice. And I kind of used some of his techniques here. So it doesn't interrupt people's brains. And a lot of music is mixed on a 440 hertz frequency, most pop music, and they do that. And the Nazis used to use that frequency for all their public addresses. And what it does is it kind of agitates the mind. It's almost like the sound feels like it's kind of tapping you annoyingly on the head over and over. They do that on radio. So when they go to advertisements, your brain is like, oh, soft, something different. And you're cued to listen to the advertisement. So I mixed on a 432 uh, hertz. And that is said to kind of massage the left and the right brain. And I found that really quite healing. I just have a different response when I listen to Planet Nine than I do to most music. I was going to ask you about that as well. Like what music worked on you before or did it, you know, did you turn yeah. to music in the past for healing or just feeling, you know, the way you described? You remember, and I think it might still be around, but it's different people, but there used to be, you know, a label called 4AD and Beggar's oh, Banquet. Yeah. And when I was like 13, it was all about, you know, they'd already kind of had their heyday, but it was about Bauhaus. It was about legendary pink dots. It was about Cocteau Twins. It was about Liz Frazier's voice. and I also love Dead Can Dance. And so I wrote my book, Brave. I listened to the Cocteau Twins album almost the entire way through because there's no words, so it doesn't really interrupt your thought. And I find I like music that gives my head space to, to kind of have feelings and think. And so I try to make that with my collaborators to the best of my ability. I didn't, while making this album, I didn't listen to a lot of popular music except for like hip hop. And things that were not, I didn't want to listen to anything kind of an electronic genre. And a lot of times electronics is a bit too hard for me. It's, it's not soulful enough. So I tried to mix something soulful with like this kind of dope rhythm. And I also used to race my car at night in a, on a track outside of LA called Irwindale Speedway. And I would do it at night and I would wonder what... I was like, wow, I feel like I'm about a foot off the ground. I feel like I'm in a, a hood ornament on top of a car and my hair is flying back if I had hair. And that, <laughs> so what music can I make to match this feeling? And it, it's really also made for driving at night. It's like fast driving at night. Wow. It's a great experience. What, so what kind of car were you driving and how fast were you going? <laughs> I was going very fast. Um, a, port, a 
a Panamera. I've always really liked German cars. Um, I love, I learned how to drive when I was 14. I made friends with this retired Formula One race car driver. And he taught me, he had like a mile long driveway with you know, circuit, like different like circular routes so he could drive on it for fun. And he taught me how to drive backwards in a Lamborghini when I was 14. So I've always, you know, I just like going fast, but also with, with intent and control. I beat a Tesla in a race, so that's good. Oh, wow. So you're actually racing as well. It's not just driving fast. No, I was racing. Oh. <laughs> All right. This is a side of you I haven't heard about. I know. I know. I have a lot of interest that people don't know anything about. Um, you know, a lot of people think maybe their perception of me is kind of like confused or especially in America. It's very different overseas how I'm perceived. But here, I know I confuse a lot of people because they're probably not used to women acting like I act, um, being kind of as straightforward and tough as I have to be. But rage and, and passion, especially rage, that covers up pain, right? And it's like, if you're doing this stuff to me, who's considered a fancy person, what are you doing to the girl or the boy who's like working for you at McDonald's, power-wise? So I just kind of wanted to I wanted to subvert the dominant paradigm is what I wanted to do. I saw a bumper sticker when I was 10, when I first moved to America. It said, subvert the dominant paradigm. And I was like, what does that mean? And then when I finally figured it out, I was like, oh, I can do that. Oh, sure. So that kind of became my life's mission. Acting was my day job. And I, I think I acquitted myself well. And I did some cool parts. But it didn't use my brain. And that's the part where I like to live the most. Did you feel like you were sort of hiding your true self when you were acting or in that world more than you are oh, now? Oh, God, yeah. Well, I couldn't be my true self. There was no Instagram. There was no social media. And even that is only a slice of yourself. But there wasn't even that. You were really at the mercy of how the studio wanted to sell you. And for me, they sold me as a sex symbol, which was kind of like the way I looked externally was very much at odds with how I internally and it set me up for this real collision course where if you're sold as a sex symbol and most interviews are quite derogatory towards sex symbols, dismissive, they don't listen to what you have to say. I've been saying the same stuff for years. It's just people couldn't hear me because they only knew a character. And so when, when you're famous, but you're famous for something, it's not you. So it was, that's why it, like my track, Lonely House, are you lonely on your planet? Are you lonely on the fringe? That was me. You know, I had a long period where I had to use a significant portion of my earnings to pay people to keep people away from me. At the same time, though, isn't it ironic or interesting or however you want to categorize it or characterize it, that because you were positioned as the sex symbol, today you have a platform to do yep. the important work you're doing now. Yeah, it was like getting deep insider information into sexism and misogyny, you know, like a hardcore like diet of it. And, and it was interesting because you know, all the inferences that people get in the society about their physical looks, about how they're supposed to behave, about like how you're supposed to be as a girl, how you're supposed to be as a man, how you're supposed to be if you're gay, like all reflected to you through movies and TV, right? But it's like 96% or 95% now and predominantly white males making all the movies because that's what's in the director's guild. It's 95%. And that statistic hasn't changed since 46. So I kind of like thought I'm going to game the system, you know, and I wanted to come out with an album years ago, but then Lindsay Lohan did. And I just thought, well, this, there's no way 
it's weird. They've always let singers be actors, but they don't like actors to be singers. It doesn't make much sense. Well, it's hard for the public to accept people and dual roles. You know, they sort of think you're an amateur if you're an actor and then you try music. Well, how can you do both? Well, obviously, people are talented. But oh, to be fair, a lot of them suck. So if there's that. Yeah, that's true on both ends. Yeah. <laughs> Russell Crowe's band. Hello. You know, you said that you made the the music for healing during an awful time in my life. And, and you were referring earlier to, you know, particularly to uh, recent years and, and the experience that you went through. But as you wrote in your book, Brave, there's way more to it in your life as well that you could call, you know, quote, awful time. So was this something you've wanted to do Always, or is it just particularly relevant to what happened recently? Because, you know, I'm referring to your time, you know, growing up in the cult that you talk about in your book. Yeah, you know, I mean, it was, it's been a very interesting journey. And I remember I always used to get asked by reporters or interviewers, like, is Hollywood the craziest thing that's ever happened to you? And I'm like, no, just the dumbest. Um, No. (laughs) It's not the craziest. It's just, it's just another in the long line of strange situations that I've always kind of found myself in and have not been scared of. My dad's nickname for me was the brave one, you know, starting at a very early age. I've kind of always been weird that way. Not meaning I haven't been scared, just meaning that I do the scary thing anyway. You just have to go through the fear. But I asked my dad when I was little, I'm like, dad, can I sing? And he's like, no. And so I did it. And then my sister asked him if she was pretty and he said, no. (laughs) And I think looking back though, he was an artist. So he was probably painting when I asked him and they just say no to an annoying child. But him saying no, you know how parents say stuff and it just sticks like that. Um, I didn't open my mouth for years except for just to like sing to myself around the house. And it wasn't until I went out actually with Marilyn Manson some years ago and he heard me singing around the house and he put a microphone in front of me. I was terrified of it. I stood like three feet away from it. It was just scary to me. And also I've had no training. So I just kind of, I actually sing a lot deeper than I do on planet nine. And, and um, my next album is going to be like singer songwriter, just different, but this one's very much a concept piece and it's an art project. It goes with visuals that I've shot for it too, but I just can't upload them because of crappy Wi-Fi. but it's very much been a thing for me. You know, imagine going to a job for 12 to 15 hours a day for 20 something years where you don't get to even have your own thoughts because you're thinking another character's thoughts and you're memorizing all these words that are not yours. And I think because I never was like in love with acting, I didn't go there like, I need to be an actor, you know. I didn't have that hole that needed to be filled with a specific craft. But I did see it as a very interesting, weird day job that happened to take a lot of hours. But it was like, I got famous very, very quickly. And then something bad happened to me and then I was blacklisted. But what other job can you get if you're already famous? It's not like you can, you know, I I wouldn't even know. My only other job besides movies was when I was 14, I worked at a funeral home, which I really enjoyed. But (laughs) I don't know if that's my career path. Well, that, uh, you know, that's kind of gets you to Marilyn Manson in a (laughs) roundabout (laughs) way. A kind of roundabout. Yeah. I've always loved like really quite androgynous looking people. And he, he, he was, he was really beautiful then, you know, he was only like 138 pounds and like six, two. And I just thought he had cheekbones. You could cut glass on. And uh, I just thought he was really cool looking and, and just also a brilliant mind. 
You talk about finding your voice, which has many meanings, right? As like an actor, as a writer, as a, a public figure, and, and now as a recording artist. Is that something that you were playing with throughout your years, you know, like trying to figure out who you are? Is that partly what you're doing here with the music? Definitely, because, you know, I only got to be me when I was off work, um, which was usually at night when I was tired or or if I'd worked all night, it was during the day. And I'm not complaining. It was, it's not like the worst work in the world. You know, I had some bad experiences, but, but it still wasn't my voice. And I didn't know how I did try to do music like 10 years ago with this German producer, but not enough is because he's German, but he took every soulful element out of my voice. And I got so dispirited. I just stopped. I shot all the visuals for the album myself. And um, uh, when I was doing that, I met these two French electronic producers that did like, it's very much like retro super future. Do you know what I mean? Like it's both familiar and unusual. I think the music on this album and we just, they didn't speak much English and that was perfect. So they couldn't ask me about my lyrics. They could just vibe with it. And now as they've gotten to know me, they speak better English and they're like, Oh, that's what that song means. I'm like, uh-huh. And it's interesting because I have all male collaborators, but I tried to work with three female producers and they all turned me down. Really? Yeah, I was thinking about that. It, it wasn't intentional. It was literally because no women that, I mean, granted, I only tried three, but I'm not in the music world. So, and I'm not really trying to be in the music world. You know, I'm not trying to have a pop career. I just really wanted to put out a great piece of art and make it kind of bulletproof. And I like to try, even if it's a fail, like to make masterpieces. I directed a, um, a film and I knew I'd probably never get to direct a movie again because this, I did it just before all the news broke, like three years ago, the exposés and all that stuff. Um, so I knew Hollywood probably would never let me make a movie again. So I tried to make a little masterpiece. And, and to the best of my ability, you know, my father was an incredible fine artist. My mom is an incredible writer and thinker. And I tried like with my book and with this album, I didn't know how to do it because I'd never done it before, but I decided to paint with words. So I, I would take the approach of how my father painted, but just use words instead of paint. What's the approach that your father used and how did you apply it to a book? Well, I just thought if each word is a color and color corresponds to emotion or each sentence is a color um, that gives you an overall color around you. I have something called synesthesia. It took me a long time to figure out what my, these color, like I would get freaked out or scared and all of a sudden, but I wouldn't be able to process, oh, I'm scared. All of a sudden it would just be like the color green around me. And I had to go through my mind eventually and figure out what green corresponded to so I could learn to deal with the emotions, right? And the way I grew up, there wasn't a lot of uh, free time to just have emotions. It was more about survival. I had fun too, of course, but it was also a lot of survival. And that doesn't, if you're the kind of kid like me who would rather just lay in a field and stare at the sky and just that was never an option on the table, I got to do that later on in my life. You seem to me like an incredible hard worker and someone who's always has a project. Um, you know, you did your book and then you had your TV show and now you have a record and God knows what else you got coming up. I have a skincare line, actually, that I've been working on for <laughs> seven years with my aunt, who's an, a beauty industry pro. And it's an incredible skincare line. But she's always like, 
when can I release this? I'm like, it's not a good time yet. I'm still fighting with monsters. Or it's like, it's like, can you imagine two years ago at the height of like all the madness in the media of the Me Too stuff? By the way, I have a skincare line. Try it. It just doesn't, yeah, not so much. Um, so maybe in a few months or maybe in like six months, I told her finally on January 2nd of this year, I really thought we were going into World War III because um, when they killed Soleimani, when they assassinated him, the American government assassinated a, a general somewhere else that, and it wasn't like within the rules. And um, I go on Twitter then, of course, and it's two in the morning and I'm going to the bathroom and I stupidly look at it and I see trending World War III, three top things. Of course, later I look back at it and it was actually Weight Watchers advertisements. <laughs> but I was like, fuck this. So I tweeted something about Iran. Basically, I was like, look, it's a proud people. All they want is someone to acknowledge it and apologize. And so I just kind of wrote on behalf of the 52% of Americans, I think I can safely say we do not want war with your country. But believe me, within a second, it was like all the MAGA people just went ballistic. Move to Iran. I'm like, don't you guys have better? Like they just say that all the move to Iran or move here or move there. I'm like, why do I have to move? Why can't I tell you to shut the fuck up from my couch? And also, you know, then my aunt was like, dude, why do you keep doing these weird things? I'm never going to be released to the skincare <laughs> line. And I'm like, right. I'm sorry, I can't help myself. And and now we have, uh, you know, the COVID nineteen where. People are not releasing new music at this point because they want to, they don't think it's a good time, obviously. I think it actually is a good time. Okay, why? Well, I mean, maybe it depends on the album. And I'm not, again, a music industry professional. So, like, PR is not my great strength in terms of promoting something. I don't have any machine behind me, you know, anything like that. It really depends on the album. It was only 10 days ago that I decided to release it now. Because I was thinking, like, what can I do? Because you feel so impotent. Like, you can't help people like you want to help them. I want to go give everybody food if they're in line with their cars, but I can't. I want to help domestic violence victims, but I can't. But what I can do is give 20% on Bandcamp if you buy the album there. It supports indie artists. And I'm funneling 20%. I only made $1,000 so far because it's $9 for the record. But that $1,000 is housing four women that just escaped from domestic violence and their three kids. So I got them an apartment for a month just with that thousand dollars and it's better sound quality than Spotify. So I'd really urge people just, if you could support COVID relief charity specifically for me, like funneling it to um, kids and women that are in, in an abusive situation trying to get out. But I also thought this is how I can help. I know this album soothes people. I know it works. I've tested it out on like the last two years. I really tested it on a lot of different groups I even, I did perform it actually at the Fringe Festival oh, really? in Scotland. And I was an idiot, an uncultured American who had not heard of the Fringe Festival and did not know of its significance. It's the most important and well-attended arts festival in the world. And that's where like Fleabag got discovered. And so people put on like their life's work there. And I didn't know what it was. I was like, sweet, someone's giving me a stage. Oh, a workshop. <laughs> I pulled it off, but I realized I was like, yeah, I don't want to perform this album. I really felt like I was honestly taking away from my visuals and from what I was trying to impart to people with the lyrics and the sounds. And I felt by standing in front of people, I'm a distraction to my own work. And so I've decided not to, I might do Lonely House, which is spoken word sometime, but I also think singing live with electronic doesn't often sound that well. It just sounds better 
how it's recorded. You know, if I'm doing singer songwriter, that might be different, but I've also never had an, I don't like being stared at very much on a stage. It feels uh, weird without a character to hide behind, which is what I'm used to. Yeah, well, it takes a little getting used to. You can, you'll get there perhaps. If, I don't know if, if I want doing to it, though. Yeah, I right? don't know if I want to. With regard to COVID that we were talking about uh, for a minute, you know, you're a thinker. What is your projection? Everybody's thinking, you know, what it's going to be like. You know, are we going to be a better world for it? Are we going to be a worse world? How how are you imagining life after COVID, assuming <laughs> there is such a thing? Yeah, well, if we make it. Um, I think if we're privileged enough and lucky enough to not be in imminent danger of losing our house apartment or trying to get food for our kids, then we should have the luxury of being internal during this part. And, and really it's like, when we get back out there, we can choose who we want to be this time. We, you know, we have time to sit with ourselves and be like, what do I want to be like when I reemerge to the world? Do I want to be like how I've always been? Or do I want to try to be, you know, the better version of me? And I think a lot of people hopefully will come out of this like the 2.0 version of themselves. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's a form of trauma, isn't it? That uh, a lot it of is. people It is. Collective. Gonna- yeah, we're all going to experience like, you know, I was around for 9-11 and I, I know that affected me and my behavior for quite a while and still like a, one of those moments you'll never forget, I'll never forget. And uh, in Citizen Rose, the, this TV show that you had, there's a segment where you meet with a trauma therapist to discuss your trauma and which is, you know, a pretty fascinating moment to to witness. and he seems to be pushing you in a direction of letting things go. And you're kind of being a little resistant to all of that, aren't you? And so is that still a process that you're going through? And and are you approaching it as well through other ways? For example, I, I talked to this artist, Swoon, who you may know, mm-hmm. who's someone, mm-hmm. really great artist, who also had a trauma in her early years and has been working with uh, psychedelics to deal with that is are you open to those kind of experiences or is this something more personal well the reason I couldn't it wasn't time to do that trauma therapy and I'm really proud of Citizen Rose it's a four-part series on Amazon that you can get and um, it was I needed someone to document that time because it was so insane and like no I would never have been able to explain it to people other than documenting it. And I also, the first episode of it, I have a lot of my Planet Nine visuals in there and some of my tracks actually. That trauma, I couldn't do it at the time because I needed that rage to fight. I still had to fight monsters publicly every day. And and that rage, I was exhausted when those articles broke three years ago. I was like exhausted. I was because I'd been being harassed behind the scenes while writing my book in really intense ways with really diabolical people all around me, but not sure who the diabolical people were. Like there was a spy inserted into my life because there was a million dollar bounty on my book, Brave. Whoever could procure it for Weinstein would get a million dollars. And he hired an, an Israeli intelligence firm and they inserted a spy into my life and they succeeded in stealing 125 pages of my book before it was published to give to him. And so the trauma of like having my rapist in my brain, in my book before, like that was just, that just, and I find out on camera 
you know, from Ronan Farrow and his fact checker at the New Yorker um, during Citizen Rose, I find out that that woman was actually a spy. And I thought she was like a women's rights ally and my friend. And they have me record it saying to her, you're the only person I can trust. And she was really former Mossad. Yeah, that sounds insane to, to hear it. Today. It is insane. It's a weird movie to get trapped in that you're like, oh God, this is weirder than any movie I've been in. And I've been in some weird movies. There's rage that fuels change. And like if people are wearing black dresses to an award show, I don't think any social movement has ever been affected by silence. You know, I take a lot of my cues from ACT UP, that original amazing, you know, activist group. And that was like a really big force in my life when I grew up, like when I was living in Seattle when I was 14. And, and uh, I've taken a lot of my cues with just really confrontational direct action differently, obviously, because it's online now. We don't have to scale gates to, you know, and walls to storm the castle, so to speak. But if you do press it power, power presses back really hard. But what I loved about ACT UP is that they were just relentless. They were like, no, this is not okay. This must stop you must help. This is how it's going to be done. And I was like, yeah, let's just be direct. Everyone kind of, I think a lot of people are really scared of just saying what they really think um, about certain things that, and I'm like, but why? What's the worst case scenario? You might get fired. I mean, yeah, I have no career in Hollywood and I had to sell my house to pay for legal fees to fight Weinstein and all that stuff. But I knew that was going to happen. But I also knew I needed to be free of that cult, which is what I call Hollywood. You know, it, it, it mimics very much the power structure of what I grew up in. And so does America. And so does, you can be in a cult in a relationship of two, you know, there's a lot of right. levels of them. Yeah. And, and our current like president basically is a cult, cult leader. Oh, he so. is. Trigger words, um, dog whistles, you know, he just says one phrase over and over and over. Then another phrase, oh, that's brain, that's mind control. So the people that are, triggered by him and susceptible to that. I mean, it's, it's like deep state mind control. It's crazy to watch. Yeah. I just wanted to say for a minute, back up with the ACT UP for our audience, that it was an AIDS activist organization that was working to make people aware that this AIDS was was an epidemic of its time as well, whereas the government refused to even mention that it existed while people were dying all around us from that. I mean, if you want to look back, and people have looked back, in fact, to Mm -hmm. comparing today, you know, to then, and the, and the, the kind of comparisons about how the government refusing to acknowledge its existence uh, led to the deaths of many people that probably would have still be alive if they hadn't done that. And they did, you know, radical acts too, right? Then they go to like St. Patrick's Cathedral and Yeah, they were radical. And- they were radical. And I, I love a radical. I really do. I really respect them. I really respect people that are like, no, absolutely not. And this is absolutely, we're dying. We don't have time. You know, we don't have time to mess around. And they were just, really intense. And I thought that was like the better way to be. And, and there's somebody in the Black Lives Matter movement that told me the reason so many people dislike you, Rose, or are freaked out by you is because you don't act like what a traditional white woman is supposed to behave like. And I think that's because for the first 10 years of my life, I was raised largely without mirrors, which was a great stroke of luck. Now, looking back, I know, but at the time it was just my life. It was everybody like, 
from Nigeria to India to Britain to, it was like a really mixed group of individuals, but the children were raised. They wanted to see what if we raised them with utopian ideals, not as a gender and not as a race. What would their minds be like? So for the first 10 years of my life, I had that freedom to not have your girl or you're this or you're that, and here's what you have to do and here's what you have to be like. But when I came to America, it was on. The conformity like that they wanted to push on to me was so strong. The first place I landed was military school, and they changed my name from Rosa to Rose the first day of school. They held my hand on my chest, even though I spoke Italian, and made me lead the class in the Pledge of Allegiance, and then told me they were going to get the commie out of me. And I was like, they weren't communists in Italy, stupid. They're fascists. But it was always on, you know, and America is really into conformity. Every time you conform just that little bit to make that moment easier for yourself in life, the moment where it seems like it, it could be harder if you don't just acquiesce and do what they say and conform to what they want. You're like, well, it'll be easier if I just go along with this and blend in with the crowd. Yeah, but what is easy? And every time you do that, you're giving away a part of yourself and you lose yourself more and more. So that's kind of what I hope right now with this cultural reset that we're going through, people will have time to like not lose themselves anymore. You said earlier, you didn't think you'd be acting again. Is that how you feel? You'll never be acting again? Well, let me put it this way. Hollywood's not calling. So it's not really an issue. It's like a block of silence from that place. I get a lot of questions from interviewers like who in Hollywood supports you? And I'm like, huh? no. I took down their cult leader. They're not happy with me. Not Meryl Streep, you mean the other one, the, the man? <laughs> the man, not Meryl Streep. But, you know, it's also like, it's just bullshit. I don't know if I'm allowed to curse here, but it's like, yeah, it's, go for okay. it. Oh, it's bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. You know, there was a 16-year-old on Twitter that uh, DM'd me and she's like, I'm 16 and work at a coffee shop and I've heard about it. Harvey Weinstein raping. And I'm like, see, it's just, it was just very common knowledge. And it was just like, oh, that's his thing. And it's like, no, this man, if you, if I calculate the years he's been doing it, all the locations he had his like rape factory set up in, I would put him from like 2000 to 3000 to 4000. Like his appetite for rape was far more than his appetite for film. Like, I think the film was a front for his rape factory. And so many agents, managers, lawyers, they would send us to these, you know, and when people think hotel room, they think it's like a room with a bed. It's like, these were presidential suites. It's like the top floor of a mansion, right? So they had like three living rooms or two dining rooms. These were amazing, like huge places where everyone, that's where you took business meetings. And when a girl would get, you know, assaulted by him and go back and tell her CAA agent, this happened to me. They would shove her under the carpet, never work with her again, but then get like their fancy actresses hired by him in trade-off. That's human trafficking. Yeah. So do you think this is still going on? Not with him, obviously, but that as that's like sort of the no. principle. No, I don't, I don't think so. I'm sure there's still pedophilia there. I'm sure there's still, which they haven't. I mean, four of Kevin Spacey's accusers have died mysteriously. What the fuck is going on? And no press goes into it. It's wild. I'm like four of them, like that he was being prosecuted for with charges. And every single time the charges drop because the kid mysteriously dies. What? I mean, that place is seriously messed up. And the crazy thing is about all the cult members in the Trump camp they see Hollywood pretty clearly. They're like a bunch of fake liberals that do bad things behind the scenes. I'm like, and tell us how to live. I'm like, yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. 
And I know them. It's not like I'm looking at it from the outside. So when I make pronouncements about Hollywood, a lot of people are like, oh, and I'm like, I'm not like you. I'm not on the outside. I get, I know these people and I've seen what they do firsthand. And, and the thing is, it'd be fine if it stayed local, if they, people wanted to be in this cult or treated like they had to be fear-based all the time and put down and minimized and sexually harassed and all that stuff. They wanted to stay there in it, but they put out thought for the world. And when we, the audience, sit and watch things, our mind is open. When you turn on Netflix, you're like, ah, your brain is open. But if it's these kind of people putting that stuff in your mind, what kind of toxicity are you getting without even knowing it? And, and how are you, sh- I mean, you go back to Disney movies, right? All those Disney princesses. Oh, yeah. The women, the girls' voices in those movies, only 20% of speaking lines in all Disney films are women. Hmm. But that's who you remember. Yeah. They're the stars in many cases. Yeah. What about Europe? Do you feel that there's potential for you to work there as a, or do you think that the system is not as the way you describe the Hollywood cult, that it's different? It is very different. It is quite different. It is different over there. Um, I think the actors tend to be a lot more serious about it. They tend to have a lot more training. Not me. I didn't. I went to one acting class in my life, so I certainly can't hold myself up to their standards. But I was with a famous director named Mike Lee last summer, and he's won a lot of Oscars for very interesting British films that he makes about British life. And he said, Rose, remember, it's world cinema. But I would rather honestly direct than act again. It's just a lot more fun for me, and it utilizes my mind. The last movie I did, I don't even remember the title. Uh, I don't even know if it came out. <laughs> but I, li- I liked acting for about four days. And then I was like, shit, I have another month. I, just, I would rather just go back to being me. It's fun to play dress up, but then you're like, Ugh. like, you know, when you're dressing up for a party, and, but then you want to take it off. Yeah, I feel like you would be a good director. Um, you know, obviously you could take charge. And in your music as well, because, you know, as you talk about it, what you learned on the set from like sound design, uh, Mm -hmm. visuals that you're incorporating into your project. Uh, So obviously you were paying attention to everything else that was going on around you. You weren't just like, okay, where's my lines? No, I was more interested in the totality of filmmaking and the craft of it. And on days I wasn't working as an actor, I'd work with, you know, the art department props, uh, the grips, the electric people would never let me work with them. And costumes. Obviously, I spent a lot of time with directors and I would get asked a lot, what did you learn from the directors you worked with? And I was like, from Wes Craven, I learned how to be gentle on set and human to everybody, which I think I would be anyway. But the rest of them, I primarily, except for Darren Stein, I did Jawbreaker and he was great. But the rest of them, I pretty much learned what not to be like because Mm -hmm. I saw their mistakes. And I saw a lot of times how they treated humans and the crew. And I'm like, these people are gold. Like these people are true artists and you're just using them and minimizing them and not getting the best from them. It's stupid. It doesn't even like, it's counterproductive. Well, it's, it's part of the cult, isn't it? The macho director. Oh God, yeah. With the female producer. <laughs> okay. But not it's the money producer, but the one who's there on set rubbing the shoulders of the stressed out male director. <laughs> Babies. Um, but with the music, I actually used for the bulk of the album, I used a movie mixer. He did Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, who did, uh, you know, he was, Trent was in Nine Inch Nails and all that stuff. But then he turned to doing scores for films and he did this, they did a beautiful score for Social Network. A film that I didn't love, but the score made it. And also they did Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which I think is great. So I found the sound mixer that did the cinema sound. And so I mixed my album with cinema sound, not 
regular pop music radio mixing. And it makes a significant difference in like pinpoint detailed sound design, which is why I tell people the first time you experience it, you know, it's kind of my prescription, like here's the dosage instructions. I really say, shut your eyes, put on headphones, get somewhere comfortable and preferably in the dark and just go on a journey for 38 minutes. After that, you can use the album however you want, dance around, do what you feel. But I think the first time, and especially because there's so many detailed sounds that you can hear on headphones, I think it's just a really beautiful way to experience it. And I worked, I just worked really hard on crafting it. Lonely House, that track I mixed 21 times. Wow. I just heard that NASA has an orchestra. It would be my dream to, <laughs> to maybe do Lonely House with them. That would be incredible. We're going to close shortly, but I wanted to get a few words about Rose's Army. What is that? How did that happen? Where right. is it going? Where are they marching to now? Well, Rose Army was really um, kind of a Trojan horse. I kind of took my cue from the Spartans in Greece who had to fight many, many times an army bigger than theirs. And they had very few people in comparison. And I knew I was coming up against an army of people. So what I did was I started hashtagging Rose Army. And it's just really, do you think different? Yeah, like people walk by me on the street and they'll just nod at me and be like, Rose Army, do you want to be different? Do you want to be better? Cool, you're in the army. But psychologically, I started it. So it looked to Weinstein and all of his evil accomplices that were coming at me that I had an army of people behind me, that I had strength in numbers. But it was really just a trick. Oh, so you mean... It was it not was a, a psycho- real army. It was a, no, yes. well, it is because people hashtag Rose Army and they're like, "Yes, I'm a member." There was a tagline for the army in uh, America for a while: "An army of one." And I was like, "Oh, I can do that." Um, and I think everybody should be their own. You know, army doesn't have to be a bad word. What if we fought for ourselves? What if we said no more? What if we tried to make you know, and, and not with violence? What if we fought with, say, long stem roses with some thorns? Right, just slapped each other with those. That would be a lot better than guns. But also it's really like it was, it was twofold. It was like one gathering a tribe. I've raised so many and I've never met them, a lot of them, but like a lot of young gay males that I've been through, like one of them, like through three rehabs so far, like in his life and I've never met him. And a lot of them are artists. And um, I kind of, I've been like kind of a guide in some ways in their life. And, and they've been, the wind beneath my wings. And so that's like Rose Army. It's just kind of like people that have been with me for a long time on this journey. But psychologically, I created the name so people would be scared and it sounded like I was coming with backup. Well, I know that there's probably a lot of followers. You've been an inspiration to a lot of people. Uh, Your activism, your outspokenness, your willing to fight the fight that you believe in and obviously have a lot of support. You've won. (laughs) So I think you you should take, you know, bow. I feel really, yeah. I mean, I did. I got that man's 350-pound weight off my neck and off the neck of other women that he did this to. And so did the other, the women that testified. Oh, my God, they went through hell. It was a a big effort. And I was the first to go on the record because I was like, this is fucking dumb. I hate this industry. I hate these people. Why do I want to protect them? That makes no sense. Well, now we could all like go to planet nine. It's the best. Dance and celebrate. Yeah. (laughs) 
I love the lyrics from Green Gold, which are the chorus is, we're only here to paint color on the sun, only here to see the fire run. Because I deeply believe that conformity steals our emotional paint box, you know? And what if we could paint the sun a different color with all of our emotions? And they steal it from us, especially women. Like, and men, they steal emotion from. Here's what you are as a man. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't show the fuck off. Let me be me. And I think Planet Nine is just really all about that message. Be you. Be free. Go home. It's great. Thank you so much, Rose McGowan. Thank you, love. For being my guest. I hope we talk again soon, David. Me too. Bye. Thank you. You've been listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Please follow us on Instagram at ShopBurb and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash lightculture, as well as iTunes and all the regular distribution platforms. Mm-hmm.